It may come as no surprise that many are still feeling the psychological impact of the pandemic, and as mental health becomes less stigmatized, a new wave of apps and companies such as BetterHelp and Talkspace have flooded this space, offering more affordable and convenient mental health services. However, while this new wave of attention on mental health is good, the interest from VCs looking to turn this attention into profit could in fact be disastrous for the industry. To discuss this new uberfication of therapy, we are joined by William Schroeder, co-owner and counsellor at Just Mind, a boutique mental health clinic based in Austin, Texas. In this episode, we talk about how these large tech companies promise mental health specialists the ability to turn on an app and be given as many clients as they can take with the promise of good earnings. However, much like Uber, these big payday promises have fallen flat, especially when these companies gain market share and they reduce the workers' wages or introduce subscription costs that claw back the profits of the individual. Additionally, William shares what he believes needs to be done in order to provide better, more affordable mental health services to the wider population. Now, if you like this episode, some other Brains Bite Back episodes that you might enjoy are Mapping the avenues of addiction in our brains Changing the chatter of our inner voice from destructive to productive and Brain Plasticity, how technology, environments and language change our brains. I'm Sam Breakgear and this is Brains Bite Back your podcast exploring the intersection between technology and psychology. So uh, my name is William Schroeder and Just Mind is uh, a group counseling practice. It's a fairly large one for Austin. I'm a director and I run it with my wife and we have around, uh, I guess, 35 or so therapists that work with us. And uh, we started in 2007 and we've grown a lot since then. I have to say, I've been really looking forward to this into you specifically because it's touched on something that I never really considered before. And it's something that I, I thought like, uh, well, I'm just getting into it. Like the pitch you sent me is an interesting topic. And uh, essentially it's the uberfication of therapy. While some might be able to do what this means for the sake of clarity, I think that we should probably cover, or you should probably <laughs> explain uh, what this means for our listeners really. Sure. Yeah. So right now we're, we're seeing a ton of coverage on mental health in general as a topic, which is really wonderful. However, we're also seeing a ton of money flow into the space. So last year we saw $8 billion flow into the space uh, since the pandemic started. And, you know, it was really kind of the, initially the like happy story of like Headspace and Talkspace and all of these different technology applications that came out and were there to be able to try and address some of the areas of need for people you know, so, and then we saw also royalty getting involved with the promotion of these things. So it was kind of a, you know, an, an interesting time. We saw the Olympics also highlight that with some Simone Biles, I guess, is, and I'm totally going to whiff on her name, but I don't know either. Don't worry. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, we, we saw that in the Olympics as well as somebody going and kind of looking at the psychological effects of performing at such a high level and, you know, being willing to you know, take a step aside because they needed to. So anyway, so the uberification of therapy and really where that's uh, coming is we're seeing large amounts of mental health practices that are getting scooped up for huge amounts of money and they're being rolled up, resold for even larger amounts of money. And for those that aren't available, these uh, things, there's like life stance and refresh. There are examples of this. They're buying practices for 
you know, 11 times their EBITDA value. So a practice may be purchased for 11 to $20 million, which is more than any therapist may ever see. So we're seeing that on one end and it kind of breaks down into three different areas. So they're the practices that are kind of being rolled up that are larger mental health practices. Um, then they're also kind of more directly hitting, hinting on the topic that we started with of there's some technology companies that promise therapists the experience much like an Uber or Lyft, where they can turn on an app and supposedly be given as many clients as they can take with the promise of good earnings. And an example of that are companies like, you know, certainly BetterHelp, which we already mentioned, but Sondermine, Talkspace. And now we're even starting to see uh, entities like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart get into this game. So um, it's big tech is definitely coming into it. And then the final, there are companies like Lyra and Headway, and uh, they offer to make things easier. And all of these say that they pay a meaning, meaningful wage to the different people that work with them. However, it's challenging in that basically these things, much like Uber or Lyft, um, Uber had promised at the beginning, they were like, you know, we're gonna give people, you, you can make $90,000 working with Uber or Lyft. And we're seeing the same thing that's happening here of where they you know, are starting with bigger wages as they gain a certain amount of market share, they start reducing those wages and, and or start in, introducing subscription costs. They start doing a number of things to claw back those profits. It's like with Uber and Lyft, we saw the MIT study that went and said they had a, their drivers had an average profit of around $3 an hour. And we're seeing an as impact on clinicians that also could cascade down in the same way of the concern about how large business entities and their focus on big profit, instead of, you know, the ethics of the things that tie to our field and, you know, taking care of the practitioners and instead of being focused solely on growth, on giving quality service. I mean, mental health is a really important area to not just have be a production line and not have it be so the therapists are struggling to survive and burning out and, deciding to leave the field because of that. So um, that's a little bit of the intro on it, and I'm happy to expand on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, that did a really good job of summarizing it. And I have to say, you really opened my eyes to this because I just had never considered it in from this perspective before. And I'm sure many listeners who take an interest in expanding mental health care services, just becoming more available, probably maybe haven't thought about this either. And personally, as someone who thought these services were a great step forward just for mental health. Uh, I initially was happy to see these companies like BetterHelp and TalkSpace gain popularity. I, I'm, I know actually like even in the podcast industry, I think BetterHelp is, or certainly for a period of time, I believe was the number one advertiser on podcasts. And I remember listening to multiple podcasts and hearing adverts for them. And I was under the impression that this was a good thing. But in light of this topic, I would love to hear what you think needs to be done in order to provide better, more affordable mental health care services to the wider population if this isn't potentially an answer for that? So, I mean, I think that there's a lot and it's it's interesting just because there's there are, are a lot of things that are coming. Like actually yesterday I was at a conference, uh, the State of Reform for Texas, and um, they were talking about the different things that are coming through healthcare, specifically mental health. And there's a lot of good things that are coming. Like in the States, we have, you know, 911 if you're in a state of emergency for, um, in general, and in the past, it, police would come out. However, when it was a mental health emergency, that's not always the best thing, right? So we may have somebody that's struggling with addiction, maybe a couple's having a bad fight, 
there are a variety of things can, that can represent a mental health crisis. And so a new thing that's going to be launching this summer, which hasn't been advertised too many places yet, because it's still in, in the stages of being put together, but apparently in July, the 988 is coming and 988 will release uh, crisis teams uh, all across the country. So they've been, the Biden administration as part of uh, some funding initiatives that they had and have, they've put together a program. So that way, when people are in a mental health crisis, whatever it may be, they actually have specialized teams that are dispatched to try and better address those needs. And, you know, that's a really wonderful thing. And of course, that's something that I think is a good fundamental baseline piece that a lot of people may not be aware of. But kind of going to uh, your question of how do we provide better affordable mental health services, I think it's, it's a process. When I look at what needs to be done more broadly speaking, you know, part of it is kind of ties into that. Of we need to have these uh, larger scale programs that, you know, are addressing the problems. And a piece of that is also, you know, possibly student loan forgiveness to be able to encourage more people to come into the field and getting them to work in areas of need. We see some of that now, but certainly we need to see more of that. And it's interesting in the United States, mental health is a unique issue politically. It's one of the few issues with bipartisan support and, you know, which hopefully means good things for it for the future. And, you know, granted, different people have different ideas of what that could mean. But, you know, that's one thing that I've seen, at least the government is aligned behind it. And I think, you know, seeing everything that we've seen from the pandemic of uh, all the different challenges that it's brought out, certainly mental health has really been highlighted whether it be in the workspace or for children at home, there's a, there's a lot that's there are people that have had loss. Um, actually, Harvard and uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, they came out with a report and said just from one year of the pandemic alone in the US, they were expecting there to be $1.6 trillion in increased mental health expenses over the next 10 years. And so certainly this just hasn't been one year. It's It's really incredible to think about that. So anyway, uh, the initial storyline of the pandemic was frequently about better help and talk space. And it's discouraging to realize that they've created production line therapy environments that are purely profit focused. And, you know, ultimately that's bad for clients and clinicians. And I'm happy to elaborate more on why, but, you know, I, I, as far as getting to the solutions of that, I think we need to have more mentor networks and more peer support networks. And actually that's another piece of what the Biden administration does for Let's say somebody has schizophrenia and, you know, they've successfully been treating it and doing well, and they want to go and help other people with schizophrenia. Now they can, they have these peer support networks that people can get partnered with and it pays them. They actually doubled what it used to pay. And so now that also becomes something that's, uh, if somebody has schizophrenia, that may have been, you know, more challenging for them and to hold a steady job or for whatever reason, it may have been created some challenges there uh, for a variety of reasons it can. Now they can actually go and do something where it helps other people and earn a meaningful wage from it. And those peer support networks are really valuable because they help direct people to resources and letting them know about things like now they have these mobile uh, medical outreach vans that come out and they can help people with medications that you know, like, let's say somebody lived far across town and they would have to take a bus and it would take them all day to get there and back. Now they don't have to have that same sacrifice. So um, there's some things that are happening and those are kind of on a core level, but we've also seen things, um, you know, like AA is wonderful for people um, that are struggling with addiction. And then they have things like Ben's Friends, which is 
more targeted towards people in the service industry. There's also programs like Communities and Schools, Boys and Girls Club, the XY Zone. I'm mentioning a number of things that people aren't familiar with, but they're all targeted towards people that are in the school system that are more at risk. My wife and I actually happen to work with a couple of those programs. And these programs are diversion programs at their very core. They're supportive and they also keep people from potentially ending up in uh, like the juvenile probation system or things like that. So kids that may have had more risky behavior or had more in-depth needs, there's programs that keep them supported like uh, the Boys and Girls Club. After school, they provide them with food and have different games and activities and even homework help. And they found through a lot of research that, you know, part of an area that where crime became higher was after school because kids would do kind of stupid stuff and get involved in potentially gang activity or just, you know, kind of sometimes bad judgment. And anyway, Boys and Girls Club, uh, among other th programs like that, were found to be very, very helpful. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a direct correlation in the research. I haven't looked at it, but for part of the reason why some of the uptick in crime has happened is because of the lack of these programs being available to people. So anyway, but those are some great examples of community-based programs that support mental health. Um, and that, those are ones, as I said, in the school. But certainly there's a number of different things that are, uh, that are out there, like you know, looking at programming for the workplace. Uh, we actually met this past week with Philip Spear, who's kind of an Austin-based celebrity chef. And he's somebody that he's worked in some really high-end restaurants here and been nominated for several James Beard Awards. And he's done a, a lot to really talk about changing uh, the culture in the service industry. Because here in the U.S., the challenge has been, instead of making it into just a job that's not as sustainable, giving people a meaningful wage and making it a little bit more like my experience of in other cultures, like in Europe and abroad, has been, you know, really having an environment that makes it so people can be professionals in this and earn enough of a wage to do so. And that encourages a health, healthy workplace culture. So for instance, one of the things that he's done uh, has been ending after shift drinks. So that way it's you know not just about hanging out with people and going out for drinks with them. It's about doing other things and replacing that with uh, healthier things like yoga. They, they wanna add in a mental health initiative. They have running that they do during the day together. There's a number of things like that. We also, our company has worked with Whole Foods headquarters, which is here in Austin, and provided some corporate wellness education. And we provided counseling support to their employees, but we've also done uh, different presentations talking about topics of, to try and kind of be that low-hanging fruit of if somebody's concerned about how to manage stress in a stressful environment or grief and loss and successful ways to be able to cope with that. Or you know, other examples can be like disordered eat eating or parenting topics of how to be able to support kids with gender, sexuality, and identity. So there's a number of things that we've done to try and help uh, make available those discussions and, you know, let people know like how they can find help and looking for some of the things that they can do on their own. And in my mind, those are really wonderful examples of what we can what we can expect for a broader base support. And speaking of workplaces in general, they're undergoing a huge overhaul with a focus on you know, their employees and wellness. And how do we try and keep our employees happy, healthy, and hopefully retained? Um, and so industrial psychologists as well as therapists are working to build a more healthy and supportive environment. And you know, even that means like we've been involved with some different companies where we've come in and help them with specific scenarios, um, like looking at 
all right, what do you do when you have somebody that passes away in the workplace? And because companies really don't know what to do and HR does kind of scratch your head when it comes to that. And it can be really helpful to have those plans instead of then deciding to call the EAP to have that kind of proactively because it's, you know, companies don't know. They're like, should we go and just, you know, remove everything from that person's desk? Do we just try and move along like normal? And so we'll come in and we'll create plans of like, let's go ahead and like actually use that person's desk that maybe passed away to have as a memorial for them and create, you know, a, a dialogue within the company so people can, you know, come together and talk about what that person had meant to them if they would like, or an easy anonymous channel for them to go and get support very quickly and over time. So anyway, so those are a couple of things that we've done um, in our company, but we're seeing that pretty broadly in the industry. We're also seeing companies have part of PTO be mental health days and all of those things I think are good. And there's so much more. I know that we're time limited on this, so I'm not going to dive too deeply into that. But then finally, I do think that apps and software, they aren't the devil. They can definitely help. Things like Headspace, I actually use myself. Hearing your voice, it totally reminds me of Andy's voice a little bit there. But um, it's a great example of you know, trying to make these things into bite-sized mindfulness so that when people are busy during the day, you know, they can find different ways to kind of be a little bit more aware and find support. And, you know, granted, I think there's a challenge because we're kind of hitting a time of peak app in my mind of where we go to our, open our phone or whatever it may be to try and look for something to try and help relax. And then all of a sudden we're greeted with all this other stuff of, you know, text messages, Slack messages, all of that. So I think it's, it's a challenging balance even for the apps to be able to solve just because the amount of stuff that we're relying on technology for. So it has those goods and the bads and it's, it's a challenge of finding that balance point. So we have to think about changing our lives systematically. So for instance, a simple example of that tying into the phone would be, should you sleep with your phone next to your bed instead of, you know, maybe having a book there or Kindle or, you know, something that helps you to wind down at night and take your mind off of everything else that may be going on in the world, whether it's the war in Ukraine or anything else that could be kind of maybe a challenging you know, thing to be looking at right before we try and go to bed. But, you know, looking at other things that we could do to be able to lower our stress and really trying to proactively address that. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. And if you are, make sure you subscribe and never miss an episode. You can find us on all your usual podcast sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and a whole lot more, including YouTube. And we want to hear what you think. So be sure to leave us a review. Just search Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. I have to say, I'm so inspired by all the things you mentioned there. That that was such a long list of like positive things or things to be positive about anyway. And I initially entered this call with, it was quite a blank slate, really. Like I understood where I was coming from, like the perception I had previously. And I was so ready to just almost like erase it and just like rewrite it based on this conversation but I had no idea what the solutions would be or what they would look like. And um, hearing some of the things that you've mentioned, some of them seem somewhat familiar, um, but there's so many new things that I've learned from that. And I have to say, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the, the initiative of the, what was it, 988 number will be rolled yeah. out. Yeah, it's supposedly coming uh, in July is their, is their goal. And it's, it's nice to see programs like that. I think that we need to really look at a foundational level of how do we provide support in our society. And unfortunately for many states, it's been 
the the jailers have been kind of the place of treatment and support for those with serious mental illness. And I think it's interesting in seeing this shift happen. And uh, I think it's it's a wonderful thing. And I, and I think we have a lot to do to continue upon it. Uh, also, it's funny, actually, you're not the first person to tell me that I sound like the fella from Headspace. Actually, I've had that before. And I've never <laughs> actually used the app. I personally use um, Waking Up, uh, Sam Harris's app. But okay. um, well, I have to look into that. And you mentioned so many things there that I know that if uh, someone's listening to this, and they do think that perhaps they do want to access mental health. Uh, it can be a bit overwhelming to know where they start. Obviously, you specified certain things for uh, certain issues that people are dealing with. Um, but if people are unsure of where to go or where to look for information, what advice would you have for them? So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a good question. And sometimes that actually can be hard to, to find an answer to. I'll, I'll state that first and foremost. As a mental health practice, in Austin, we've seen the amount of requests. They're, they've been anywhere from 100 to 200% of what they normally are. Um, and no doubt that's the same thing across the country. So the reality is uh, the need for services is higher than it's ever been. Uh, and for mental health clinicians who are listening or electronic medical records companies, um, I would really encourage them to develop systems uh, that help therapists know each other's availability. In Austin, uh, we use online forums and check in with other practices to try and see who has availability. And our practice actually does this every couple of weeks. So that way, if somebody comes to us and they can't get care, we know where they can. And so we'll try and say, hey, hey, here's a couple other options that are out there for you. They take this insurance, which aligns with your need. They have availability for your child or you as a couple or you as an individual. So things like that are important. And my hope is that EMRs, which stands for electronic medical records uh, companies, I'm hoping that we'll see more within them as well. So that way we'll see the maybe a real-time dashboard that you could pop up and search for uh, other available providers. If people are looking for themselves though, uh, if they're having a hard time, one little kind of trick is that let's say if they work at a company, they could go and contact their HR and let them know that they're having a hard time trying to find support. And um, that lights a fire under the insurance companies because the last thing that they want is an HR department telling them how their services aren't working properly. So um, that pushes them to keep up-to-date options or expand their networks. I know like I was recently talking with uh, some practice owners that are in the Bay Area and they were saying it's almost impossible to get on insurance there. And yet they constantly have people contacting them that want to use their benefits. So it's, it's a huge problem that there's a lot of different angles to, and if people contact their employers about it and let, you know, their HR departments know that that's an issue, that's, that's one way to address it. There are also online therapy directories like Psychology Today and Theravive and Good Therapy, and they can help be helpful for people finding clinicians. Um, you often need to contact several. An unfortunate reality there is a lot of these companies kind of operate, it's, they're like black box companies. There's like, and by that, I mean, it seems like there's very few people that are actively working on it. It feels like if you call customer support, then like a light suddenly flickers on ahead and somebody's like, oh my God, I have to answer a phone. These companies just aren't well staffed and they don't do a lot to really address the current needs. They're owned generally by venture capital and private equity. 
and they just kind of sit there and collect money. They don't actually address those needs because like it would be smart if they had, if they tied into EMRs or if they tied into electronic medical record systems, or if they would ping the providers to say, hey, are you still taking new clients? How is that looking this week or this month? Because even if they just had the snapshot of once a month, it would be better than what it is. The other things that I would say is if people can go out of network uh, with their insurance and do private pay, they'll have more options that are there. They have different things like getbetter.co and reimbursify, which are tools that help people to be able to like file those reimbursements and not have to deal with a lot of the hassle of insurance companies. And then if you don't have insurance and your finances are tight, there are a number of agencies in town, like the YWCA is one here in Austin. There's Capital Area Counseling, which is another that we have. But basically they're places that take people that are fresh out of school and they provide support. Sometimes it's even counselors that are in training in school um, or newly graduated that are there and they can be at low or no cost. So those are some different options that, that exist for people trying to find support that they may not be aware of. Thank you. And now you mentioned quite a lot of topics or a lot of services uh, to kind of describe the direction we're heading in. And I was going to ask you about the future of the mental health services landscape overall. But to be quite honest, I'd be quite interested to hear what you think these kind of like larger companies that you talked about, like how do you see this uberfication of therapy evolving over the next five years? Do you think that it will die down or do you think it will like increase? I mean, it sounds like it's growing quite a lot. Or do you think that it's going to get potentially hit by the same issues that obviously you see like Uber being hit by, like, like you mentioned, like the, the ethical side of this kind of coming out and people being, I suppose, maybe more skeptical about it? So I feel like it could go in several different directions. And I thought about this for a bit to try and make sure that I had a good, a well-composed response. So I feel like it could go so many different ways. It's it's interesting because it's like as much as people may rely on Uber, we still don't actually know if they can survive. The venture capital and private equity that are behind them, we still don't even know if it's going to be a business model that survives past that, which is kind of a scary thing to think about when we start throwing in mental health within that same scope, Right. So my first prediction is that we could see a consolidation of group practices and app-based systems that may destroy the field. And we may see a lot of clinicians that leave. People aren't going to want to be treated with just a constant focus on metrics. And, you know, we're seeing with a lot of therapists that are already struggling with burnout. And if you combine that with half the pay and higher bills, there's going to be fallout. So another potential way that it could go is as inflation sets in and uh, the flow of money tightens that we've seen the market cap of a number of these different companies cut, like LifeStance, which I mentioned, they were initially valued at 7.5 billion. And, and the last I checked, they were at 3.1 billion. And that's just in eight months that they've fallen uh, back that far. So it's likely that a number are gonna fail, pivot or be acquired. And you know, not to say that 3.1 billion is, it, it, is nothing to sneeze at, but these companies will continue to be able to acquire debt uh, but it's up to a certain point. It's a question of how far are they from becoming profitable? These companies are very focused on the same target market. And, you know, as one CEO had told me, it was like, we're always, you know, out in front of our skis trying to spend and beat our competitors. And I don't know how long that's going to last. Having personally been in the Bay Area and working in technology in my own past, you know, I saw an end to that come pretty hard and fast in 2001. So, you know, I don't know if it's going to be the same kind of thing that ultimately happens here. I would imagine so that many of these companies will likely fail, be spun off, 
or pivot to an address an area where there's an actual need. Um, like for instance, there's a company that uh, I heard about that's doing something really wonderful in California where they actually ended up pivoting and partnering with nonprofits. And so that way, if anybody that's in a mental health crisis or emergency within Alameda County, they have a system that's linked in so they can know like all the points of care that this person has had and what they respond best to. And to make sure that so if somebody's in a bad moment, they have a snapshot of who this person is, what they may need and how to be able to really address them. Um, so things like that can be helpful. And certainly there's the challenge of privacy and all of that with that, but there are needs that are there that I think could be very uh, effective and helpful. Another prediction is that insurance companies are going to start building moats, and we actually recently have started to see some of this happen. Um, but insurance companies are going to start insulating themselves from the risk of the app-based companies who claim that their future is pressuring the profit margins of insurance by renegotiating those different rates. And also insurance companies could self-refer for things like telehealth. So instead of going and, you know, let's say they allow individual clinicians to see people in person, but they end up going and shifting it so that if somebody wants telehealth, they could pay zero, you know, copay and be able to go and see somebody more quickly through their own network potentially, um, which sounds great. But then it's also like, I'm sure that they'll probably do a lot to really put metrics on stuff and rein in the cost of it as well. So I get that there's a tug of war in this no matter what, and insurance companies are always going to be focused on that balance between controlling cost and trying to hopefully provide a better end process. But I'm sure that they're you know, going to be also very focused on the data that they collect um, and it's assessing care. And I'll say as a clinician, sometimes those things don't go together. I've definitely had clients in the past where I was trying to keep them out of you know, a higher level of care, being hospitalized and you know, by seeing them once a week, which is, doesn't seem like a lot. And I've had insurance companies push back and say, that's too much. We want this cost to come down. And that's a challenging thing to hear as a clinician and to realize as a person that, you know, ultimately these insurance companies are very profit-driven as well outside of that, the app stuff. And it's a challenging thing for a healthcare model to have that um, when it may not be in the same direction as what somebody needs. The last couple of predictions I have is we may see an outcome-based uh, care model come to the forefront. And this means that clinicians are paid by a model that focuses on the outcome instead of service codes. So like when you go into a pediatrician's office or a doctor's office very frequently, you'll notice all the different things they're doing that generate service codes, like them taking your weight, your blood pressure, all your vitals, as well as seeing you. Those are all things that actually provide reimbursement for them. And mental health, we just see somebody for an hour or 45 minutes or, you know, there's increments of time, but there's not all these add-ons for complex service codes that are there. And we may see a focus shift towards what are the models of therapy that are showing through evidence that like may be more successful at treating different conditions like EMDR is one that stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a mouthful to be able to say, but it's one that has proven that with four 90 minute sessions, 90% of people with a single incidence of trauma can no longer meet the criteria for PTSD. So there's different things that are like that. Um, DBT is another one that has a high degree of efficacy and you'll, that's why it's frequently used and uh, intensive outpatient uh, programs. Um, but there may be more of an emphasis on things like that and trying to train more clinicians on those treatment models that are best get results. And you know it could comp compensate people more highly for those people that use the methods 
that have the greatest chance of success, which that's something that's interesting. The challenge within that is there are different things. Like if somebody has been through complex trauma, where let's say since they were a kid, they may have seen a lot of, and been victim of a lot of abuse, you know, as you're starting to treat them, it's, they may actually have worse symptomology and things like that can take a lot more time to be able to treat because the human mind and body are a fascinating thing. And we do a lot to evolve to try and take care of ourselves. And, you know, there are different things like dissociative identity disorder and dissociation in general that are designed to kind of be like the fuses that blow out, that prevent somebody from really being able to take in what was really horrific that they went through, whether it's war or, you know, abuse or anything like that. And, you know, the challenge is then as an adult, then working through that stuff, because inevitably it may affect their intimacy or their ability to be close with people or just to be able to function in society. I mean, a huge amount of the people that we see that are homeless in Texas, I can't remember if it's the largest portion of homeless or the second largest portion, but it, it is veterans. And so, and that's a sad thing to realize is absolutely it's trauma that's at the core of that. So last couple of predictions here, um, we will continue to see more benefits given to mental health clinicians by group practices. We may even see some different models potentially that are employee owned as a way of trying to support different clinicians. I think that we'll see different like group practices kind of like our own continue to try and grow and nurture and support and be an environment for people to kind of be like that big lazy boy chair that they can come into and hopefully try and get comfortable in and be supported in. And because that's, I think the goal that every group practice wants, we don't want to just have an environment where people come and then decide to, to leave. We want a place where our clinicians come, stay, they're comfortable, they're supported, they learn, they grow. And, you know, hopefully that's a lifelong thing. And um, that would be a nice thing to counteract some of what we're seeing in the app-based world. And then finally, like I said I, I, uh, earlier, of I think we're going to see more people utilizing services since the pandemic, and it's been the start of a great awakening for mental health. Um, the JAMA and Harvard da and data really pointed out that, you know, the the cost of this time uh, on people's mental health over the next ten years or so, and I think. I think that they're correct. Um, certainly, we've seen that with the amount of demand and just people being open to seeking support. I, I can't tell you how often we find people that are coming in that have never been to counseling before. And very frequently, like I'll say as a mental health practice, we absolutely market towards a female audience. And part of the reason being, they're the ones that are encouraging their partners and encouraging their loved ones to get the support that they need, whether it be because they can see them struggling or men are more resistant, inevitably. It's a sad part of our conditioning is that whole thing of, toughen up what would, you know, the neighbors see or think if they saw you like this, there's all of that stuff that so many people are conditioned with. So I, I think women really do in, influence and encourage and support their partners. And it's not just to say that that's always true, that men will never seek out therapy. That's not to, it, not to say that. It's just, it's certainly like, I think women are more open to group support and encouraging others to do that versus men very often will sit with that hard pain themselves and really just, and unfortunately, be, be stuck in it. Yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying. And I have to say, being British myself, I do see in our culture, like we have that or I've classically had that. Um, fortunately, it hasn't really affected me. I think that maybe it's because I like having studied psychology myself, university, I understand the necessity to like really talk and communicate. But uh, we have that culture of a, a stiff upper lip. And um, yeah. 
yeah, I definitely can understand what you're talking about. And it's it's more prevalent in men from what I've seen as well. So I don't think you're wrong in that sense. And um, what you're saying makes absolute sense to me. It's always striking to me to see like we, my wife and I happened to be talking with somebody um, recently when we were just, we were uh, actually out at, at a restaurant and there was a person that was next to us. And they were talking about how during the pandemic, how it had been really hard for them. And you know, they were smiling as they told a story of like their, you know, their very, very young child who got cancer during the pandemic and how scary that was for them and how they had, they ended up moving out of, you know, the city where they had been living and moved closer to where some family was, but then even the family couldn't be there to support because of concern about COVID. And then the whole, the whole family as their kid was just finishing up their cancer treatment, got COVID. And when I heard all of this, I was like, oh my God, as a mental health professional, you know, you just hear the layers of traumatic events that they truly went through and they didn't have those normal supports during this. Normally you think about any tough time that you go through and, you know, there are those friends that you can talk to. And if you're having a hard time, they have that buffering capacity to be able to go and support you in the tough moment. But, you know, during COVID, everybody did isolate more. And when you look at like somebody going through a hard time and then being forced to truly isolate, like this person indicated, obviously they had to do of, they couldn't take any risk because it was just too scary of what would happen, how they might, their child might die. Um, all of the isolation and the pain and all the transition. And, you know, as I talked to this person, I, that's really significant. And, you know, I, we really encouraged them to seek support and told them a little bit about EMDR as a potential thing for them. And it was interesting in hearing them because the the guy was very much of the reminder of how so many men hold on to this of where he was saying, he was like, you know, I, I don't want to lose touch with this pain. I'm too scared that I'll forget it. And I could tell how it was really hurting him and holding him back and likely hurting the you know connection that he had with his wife and his marriage. And sad because that's not an isolated example. I mean, everybody has a story of loss in their life. And, you know, I think during this time, it was, it's made it even that much more profound and people need to be able to seek support and feel that it's going to be okay and at least try it. So I'm hoping that that's one of the things that'll come out of this time. Yeah you and me both and hopefully we do make it to that stage where everyone can get the support they need for those sad and difficult times that they go through just like the one you mentioned there and also like our time's coming to an end but I just wanted to conclude really with just thanking you for bringing this to this topic to to light for me and also coming so prepared with uh, I suppose uh, answers and solutions to to an issue that I didn't really know existed and I'm I wouldn't be surprised if many of our listeners were similar to myself and in the sense that they might have been oblivious to this. So if people do want to keep up with what you're doing or follow you folks at Just Mind, uh, what's the best way of them doing that? They're absolutely welcome to connect with me through LinkedIn uh, or they can certainly try and catch me on Twitter if they'd like to do that too. Uh, it's at Just Mind uh, on Twitter and um, I am the person that's behind that. So that's another way to be able to connect with me. But certainly I'd be glad to talk with anybody about this issue and and or if they're trying to find support. Perfect. Excellent. Well, we'll have some links there um, in the description of this episode. But otherwise, once again, William, thank you so much for joining me. Growing a company has many hurdles from securing funding to expanding your business capabilities to ranking better on search. Each business challenge is uniquely complex. 
The solution to these challenges is growth-focused digital PR and marketing, and that's where our sponsor Publicize comes in. Publicize sets itself apart from traditional PR companies. It does not charge large retainers or churns out press releases whether you've got a newsworthy announcement or not. Publicize builds on your business's online presence and gets high quality PR and media coverage for startups and entrepreneurs who are priced out of a broken PR industry. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive a social media assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's publicize.co slash BBB. This is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this and you want to hear more episodes just like it, then follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on YouTube under the channel of our publication, The Sociable. Just search Brains Bite Back and you'll find all of our episodes there. We really love hearing what you have to say. So leave us a review on iTunes or on any other podcasting platform to let us know what you think. You can also reach out on Twitter at, at The Sociable. And finally, go to sociable.co where you can find all our episodes and plenty of articles on topics just like this. Thanks again for joining us and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.